We're going to spend some time studying the Bible together now. We believe that the Bible speaks to us with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. So we spend time every week studying it, trying to be good listeners. Um, we are finishing, I get, finishing is too strong of a term. We're more than halfway through now, Ecclesiastes. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up your Bible to Ecclesiastes. We'll be in chapter 5 and 6 today. I'm going to start speeding up a little bit as we move through Ecclesiastes. Now that we kind of get it, we kind of understand the book, right? Y'all that have been with us, you feel like you're getting it a little more? Yes? No? Maybe? A little bit? Okay. Uh, the big idea in Ecclesiastes, some key repeated phrases, just to remember, is that life is vanity or futility or meaningless, depending on your translation. And that word in Hebrew is chavel, which is like a mist or a vapor. And he restates that throughout the book by saying it's like grasping after wind. So life is good, but it's so temporary. Life can be beautiful, but it's not something you can really hold on to. It slips through your fingers. And then he also repeats the phrase of under the sun or under heaven. So he's trying to figure out theology and figure out life from the ground up. And we have certain limitations. And so the frustrations, the negative things we go through in life should press us to reach out to God, to reach out beyond the sun to him and who he is and what he's done for us. This week, we're, we're focusing on money. This week, we're saying money is a mist. Money is, that Hebrew word, chavel. It's futility. It's vanity. It's a chasing after the wind. So that doesn't mean money is completely evil, um, but he is going to use the word like there's some evil, there's some tragedy, there's some, some bad stuff that happens when we chase after money, okay? Um, so if you have a Bible, open it up to chapter 5. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read chapter 6 first, and then when we work through the sermon, I'm going to go back and work through chapter 5. Because chapter 6 is kind of like the poetic punch in the face. So I'm going to start there. Uh, and then chapter 5, verses 8 through 12, kind of explains. It's more explanatory. So we'll kind of work through it systematically. Um, before we get started, though, I was thinking about this whole concept of the mist, the vapor, the grasping after wind. And I was remembering a practical joke that I've seen. My friends have done this. I don't think I would have ever done this. I, may, I don't know. Maybe I did. But um, where you have a $20 bill and you put a little piece of fishing wire on it, and you put the $20 bill out in a busy walkway, like out at a mall or something, or out on a sidewalk, and when someone reaches down to grab the money, you jerk the fishing line. Have you ever seen that before? It's pretty hilarious. You should all go try it this week, okay? <laughs> and what that practical joke demonstrates is what he's going to be talking about in the text today, that there's a sense in which we can invest, we can dive after money, and then boom, it's gone, and we've We've lost it, or we've missed out on more important things. Here, here's the big idea for today that goes along with the big idea of every other week in Ecclesiastes. Don't put all your stock in the things of this world. God is the only one that can really satisfy you. Jesus talks about having treasures in heaven, right? God is the only one that can really satisfy you, so that doesn't mean money is evil, but it also is clear that money is not a savior. Money cannot save us. So I'm going to read again. I'm going to read chapter 6. Um, it's chapter, uh, I think it's page 555 in the Black Bibles. Uh, as we've been going through Ecclesiastes, I've been making it extra difficult for you because I'm reading a different translation than those Black Bibles, okay? We're just trying to work you over here, make you an extra hardworking student of the text. So I'm reading the CSB, those Black Bibles, the ESV, around page 555. I'm going to read chapter 6. Here is a tragedy I have observed under the sun, and it weighs heavily on humanity. God gives a person riches, wealth, and honor so that he lacks nothing. I can't turn the page. So he lacks nothing of all he desires for himself, but God does not allow him to enjoy them. Instead, a stranger will enjoy them. 
This is futile or vanity and a sickening tragedy. A man may father a hundred children and live many years. No matter how long he lives, if he is not satisfied by good things and does not even have a proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For he comes in futility or vanity, and he goes in darkness, and his name is shrouded in darkness. Though a stillborn child does not see the sun and is not conscious, it has more rest than he. And if a person lives a thousand years twice but does not experience happiness, do not both go to the same place? All of a person's labor is for his stomach, yet the appetite is never satisfied. What advantage then does the wise person have over the fool? What advantage is there for the poor person who knows how to conduct himself before others? Better what the eyes see than wandering desire. This too is futile or vanity and a pursuit of the wind. Whatever exists was given its name long ago, and it is known what mankind is, but he is not able to contend with the one stronger than he. For when there are many words, they increase futility or vanity. What's the advantage for mankind? For who knows what is good for anyone in life in the few days of his futile life that he spends like a shadow? Who can tell anyone what will happen after him under the sun? So another little kind of depressing thing we get there from from Solomon. He's using poetic language here, and I want to just talk about the one really most harsh punch that he threw here, and that is that the person that doesn't enjoy the good stuff that God gives them is worse off than a stillborn child. I know some of you have lived through that tragedy of a miscarriage. What I want you to understand here is Solomon is saying that is a tragedy. That is a tragedy. He's not trying to belittle the tragedy that you've gone through. What he's saying is to live a life apart from God is even worse. To live a life of not knowing God and his graciousness is the ultimate tragedy. And he says it, it, even if you live a thousand years, it doesn't make up for not knowing God. So he's bringing us back to that theme that he keeps hitting again and again, that this world is good, there's good gifts in it, but if you try to grab onto this world as if it can save you, as if it's everything under the sun and you're missing out on the God who is over the sun, then you're missing the most important thing. You're missing the most important thing. Let me pray for us, and then we'll look at it, kind of going back to chapter 5. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. We pray that you would teach us. We pray that you'd give us open minds. Um, I pray for my friends that are here today that have doubts and questions, that you'd help them to consider what you have to say to them. Pray for those of us that see you by faith, that you would grow our faith, that you would help us, to, again, to, to be reminded of your goodness and your grace to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So money is a mist. Money is a mist. And if we go back to chapter 5 now, starting in chapter 5, verses 8, he's going to start making logical arguments. So chapter 6 was kind of like the hard boom. You know, this is a wasted life if you don't know God and his graciousness. Now chapter 5, verse 8 through 20, he's going to make some systematic argumentation. And three major points that I'm going to take us through as he moves through the text is money is never enough, right? So therefore, money can't be your savior because money's never enough. You always need more. And then secondly, money does not last. Money can't really save you because it doesn't last. It doesn't take you into the afterlife. And then finally, he's going to focus in on how money only works by grace. It only works by God's grace. If you don't understand God's grace, you're not going to know what to do with money, whether you have a little bit or a lot. So first of all, the idea that money is not enough. We'll look at verses 8 through 12 in chapter 5. So we'll back up to chapter 5. Starting in verse 8, he says, If you see oppression of the poor and perversion of justice and righteousness in the province, don't be astonished at the situation. Don't be astonished at the situation because one official protects another official and higher officials protect them. 
different translations say this differently, like one's watching the other's back, right? So officials are looking out for each other, or it could be translated as like one's watching the other one to make sure he gets what he wants out of him. But he's saying, don't be astonished. Don't be surprised when you see corruption and oppression. Now, we have to balance this as Christians, right? We're, we should be unshockable. The world is broken. Christians of all people, we believe that we are sinners that need a Savior, right? So Christians coming to a church are signaling to the world that we believe we're broken and we need God to help us. Uh, and so, of course, we would not be astonished by corruption. But because Christians also desire to see God's word honored in the world, we can also be really heartbroken when God's law, when God's word is not honored, right? So we live with that tension. On the one hand, we know people are sinful. We're, we're sinful. That's part of waking up and being born again is recognizing, I'm a sinner. I need, I need forgiveness. So therefore, we're not shocked by other people's sin. But on the other hand, it says this in Psalm 119, verses, it's like way down in verses 129 through 137. It says, I, I shed tears because people are not honoring your law, O God. That's, an, that's the other side of the Christian's life. There's a sense in which we are brokenhearted because of the corruption, because of the injustice we see around us. We saw that a couple of weeks ago. We should be brokenhearted over injustice. So he's saying, don't be surprised. People are going to do corrupt, unjust things, and it's connected to money, right? This whole section, chapter 5 and chapter 6, he's connecting back to the issue of money and that money is never enough. So look at the explanation in verse 9. The profit from the land is taken by all. The king is served by the field. Um, so what he's saying is you got workers in the field, you got people doing stuff, but eventually that works its way up to the king. Everybody's trying to get their share, right? Like a giant pyramid scheme. Um, every government official, every person wants to get in on a little bit, you know, like I'm going to scrape a little of the profit and I'm going to scrape a little of the profit. So it all funnels up to the leader. Now this is really interesting because he's criticizing who? He's criticizing government officials and the king. So some scholars are like, see, that's why we know it wasn't really Solomon. Because Solomon couldn't critique himself. I'd say, hold on. That, that's actually one of the marks of authenticity in the Bible. That's what makes Christians, it's one of the things, that makes Christians see the Bible as a supernatural book. Because the Bible engages in self-critique. The Bible humbles man and exalts God. And says, we're messed up, but God is awesome. So we see that with the apostles in the New Testament, right? When they tell their stories, when you read the Gospels, the, the disciples, the followers of Jesus, they're always not getting it. Have you noticed that when you read the Gospels? It kind of makes me feel better about myself. When I read it, I'm like, oh, okay, I'm not quite as stupid as I thought. The disciples also didn't get it, right? And so you see this all throughout the scriptures, great heroes of the faith like King David and like Moses. And you see these characters who, who failed, but God showed grace to them. And so we see that with Solomon, just as we would see it with anyone else, self-critique is part of what authenticates this book. Other religious books would say, our religious leader is perfect, and you should be like them. As Christians, we need to make sure we don't fall into that trap of religiosity that other religions hold on to, where they say, I'm so great, be like me because I'm so great. Now, Christianity doesn't do that. We say God is great, and we need him. So, so follow me as I follow Christ, as I pursue him, the God who forgives me and empowers me and shows me grace. That's an important distinction. So here Solomon is engaging in self-critique. Yeah, the king is a part of the, the corruption. Verse 10, the one who loves silver, we could just say money, the one who loves money is never satisfied with silver or money, and whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. This, too, is futile or vanity or meaningless, it's that word, Havel, that mist, vapor. It's 
the chasing after the wind. So here's, here's the truth. He's stating it for us. We're never satisfied with money. So Solomon, richest man in the world at the time, is saying, okay, for those of you that don't have quite as much money as me, just know once you get it all, it's still not enough. So he's got this great vantage point. He's able to tell us this thing that, that you and I wouldn't know, right? I mean, we do live in America in the 21st century. So by some standards, we are kind of like the richest people in the world, right? But Solomon was at this completely other scale, right? Hard to, hard to comprehend riches and wealth. And he's saying it's, it's never enough. It does not satisfy. So number one, do you believe that? Do you believe that? That is a peculiarly Christian biblical thing to believe that money's never enough and you can never have enough to truly satisfy you it can't be a savior it's not a true spiritual fortress that we might think it is that we might run to money is never enough look at verse 11 when good things increase the ones who consume them multiply what then is the profit to the owner except to gaze at them with his eyes He's saying, you know what, that just life gets more complicated. People that need money increase as your money increases, right? Things break. you got to fix it. If you own a business, you know what it's like. There's always something to, to work on. Those of you that have moved from renting to owning a home, how many of you recently moved from, like, renting to owning a home? Raise your hand if you've gone through that transition. And it was this great dream, only one of you, two of you. Okay. Um, well, I'll just use myself as an example. So I, I have recently gone through that. Well, actually, it's been, been, like, 12 or 15 years now. It still seems recent. But when we made this transition, when we started owning our own home, what happens to the home? It starts breaking, right? So you're like, this is great. You know, I was paying this much money for rent. Now I'm paying this much, and I'm getting equity. Home ownership is wonderful, but it breaks. You have to fix it, right? Before, when you rented, the other guy had to fix it. Now you have to fix it. And this is part of what he's talking about here. When you own things, when you run the business, when you're in charge, the problems just multiply. And he goes on in verse 12 and says, the sleep of the worker is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich permits him no sleep. So what he's trying to emphasize here, he's not trying to say, so therefore you don't really want money. What he's saying is money can't save you. He's saying don't think that when you've arrived and you've become King Solomon or you've become in charge or you've become the head of the company or you've become the leader in your field, don't think that then you've arrived and you've got enough money and everything's going to be okay. He's like, no, because problems just multiply. And there's, there's this kind of sleep when you're not in charge, when you just do your work and go home and go to bed. It's a sweet sort of sleep. You don't have to worry about things. He's saying there's, a, there's actually an advantage in some ways over not having as much money. Now, you've got to put this in broader context, in the biblical context of money, and that is contentment in God being our support, our savior, our fortress, allows us to be content with little and with much. So the Bible doesn't com condemn riches. It doesn't say it's wrong outright to, to be wealthy. What it says is the problem is seeing your wealth, seeing your money as your savior. That's really the problem. So then if you have a lot of money, then you're a steward, and you should use it for the glory of God and the blessing of other people. And if you have just a little bit of money, you're still a steward. You should glorify God and bless other people. Either way, you should be content in God and not in the money itself. So money is never enough. Don't seek the money as the thing that will solve your problems. There's a famous saying you may have heard. This uh, famous rich person was interviewed. Um, a lot of people thought it was John D. Rockefeller. I was looking this up. He was one of the famous, really super wealthy people from the turn of the century or the previous century, 19th to 20th century. 
And Rockefeller supposedly was interviewed, and he said, how much money is enough? And he said, one more dollar. Have you all heard that, that quote before? Some of you have heard that. We don't really have much hand raising going on. Everybody just push your hands up. Stretch. Okay, there we go. All right. Um, so supposedly he said one more dollar, right? What he's saying is it's never enough. You always need more. Turns out Rockefeller actually didn't say that. We don't think he said that. It was just attributed to him because he was a famous rich guy. Um, I went up and I looked up a bunch of other quotes. Actually, his quotes were more in keeping with a biblical worldview, right? Like God is the giver of wealth and we should be good stewards of our wealth and use it to glorify God. Um, so actually, I did a little more searching, and I think I figured out who said this, the one more dollar thing. <laughs> Another famous wealthy uh, tycoon named Scrooge McDuck, okay? So I think now, I'm still not sure. If you guys know, maybe you could help me out if you know quotes in, in history and stuff. I think it was him. Still not sure who it was. Um, but it's this idea that just one more dollar will be enough, right? I've got millions. I've got billions. If I just have a few more billion, then I will be satisfied. What Solomon's telling us here is, no, you're never really satisfied. It's never enough. It never ends. Apart from God's grace, you're never satisfied. If you want the money to satisfy you, it's never enough. And so the Christian learns that we can be satisfied in what God has given us in life because we're satisfied in God. We're satisfied in him as the giver of good gifts. Um, 1 Timothy 6 says this about money. 1 Timothy 6, 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. So hear that, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. We usually misquote that and say, money is the root of all kinds of evils. You've probably heard it said that way, right? What's the love of money? Money is not evil. It's a neutral tool God gives you to glorify him. Your job, your time, your money, your house, those are tools God has entrusted you with. What are you going to do with them for his glory? How are you going to love God and love other people with what he's entrusted you to? Solomon here is saying the way you don't glorify God with your money is by thinking your money can save you thinking your money can truly satisfy you. Don't look to the money to satisfy you. It's never enough. Money is not enough. That's not what it's designed for. It's a tool to be used by the sons and daughters of God. Paul goes on in 1 Timothy 6. He says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Saying there's a sense in which this world is temporary, right? It's vapor. It doesn't last. It's a mist. But there's this true life, this spiritual life that we can invest in. It's deeper and more beautiful and more satisfying as we invest in God. As we use the tools he's given us, to, to glorify him. So the question is, are you doing that? We need to think about this as we head into elections, right? We're heading into elections the next couple of weeks. Um, I'm 45, so of course, I kind of believe in capitalism, right? Older people or people that have run businesses generally believe capitalism over socialism because it tends to work better in the real world. I don't want to be overly political here, but um, it tends to work better in the real world. But those of us that are capitalistic, we have to recognize that, you know what? 
in the, in the voting and the politics and all the hatred and all the vitriol that's going on in elections, both socialists and capitalists are often making an idol out of money, right? So we're not really having the argument over what works better than the other. We're just screaming at each other because we both feel our Savior being threatened because our Savior is money. And so that's why there's so much hate. And so, yeah, man, I'm, I think capitalism works better than socialism, but I can engage in the political process in a calm way and hopefully have easy conversations with people because it's not my Savior that's being messed with. My salvation, my future rests on God, not on whether I have money or don't have money. So, yeah, do I believe if my neighbor votes the wrong way, I might lose money? Yeah, I might lose money, and that's okay. That's all right, because ultimately my trust is in God. So I would say, man, we, we need to stay engaged. We need to vote. We need to study the issues. Ne- you need to learn about economics, especially if you're, you know, under 30. You need to study these things. You need to learn more about it. But don't put all your hope in that basket, right? Don't put all your hope in the basket of money, and don't put all your hope in the basket of politics, because money can't save you and politics can't save you. So we need to be very careful about that. Should we passionately believe things? Should we vote? Should we think? Should we even debate? Yes. But, but don't put your trust, your hope in the riches of this world. That's what he's trying to say here. He's saying it, it doesn't last. Who knows what tomorrow will bring? So one of the ways that we can express this, one of the disciplines of the Christian life, one of the historic disciplines of the Christian life is giving away your money. And so just so you don't think I'm doing this as a special ploy to raise our budget, I would just say, okay, don't give it to us, right? Give it to someone, but give your money away. Now, of course, I I would like you to give it to us too. But the point here is the giving is the most important thing, right? Giving your money away as a habit, as a discipline of God's grace at work in your life. And so what Christians do is we look at the letters from Paul and Corinthians where he says, because God in Christ poured out his riches for us, we take our riches and we pour them out in generosity to others. That's why we give. The health and wealth gospel flips this upside down, right? The health and wealth gospel takes some general principles and then makes it into a gospel of salvation. So the general principle is just like working hard and brushing your teeth is a good idea, giving is a good idea, right? It's a good idea. There's a blessing associated with it. But they take that principle and they turn it into a God. And they say, if you give to make it ridiculous, if you brush your teeth, then God will be forced to bless you. You can control him by how much you brush your teeth or how hard you work, right? No, you don't get to control God. God is God. We should only give because we believe God is a good giver who's given good gifts to us because God has been gracious to us ultimately in Christ. So then we give to symbolize that, to show that, to be like Jesus who gave up his very life. Then we give out of the overflow of our own heart. It's an important distinction. So health and wealth gospel people take this principle, giving is good, and they turn it into a false gospel. All your hope is in give a little of your money, and then you'll get more money, right? Or you'll, you'll get more blessing back from God, and it becomes a form of manipulation. Money can't carry that burden. Money is not a savior. Money is not a God. It's just a tool that God has given us to use for his glory. So I'd encourage you to look for charities that you believe in, look for ministries that you believe in. We partner with a lot of parachurch ministries in the community and across the world. We partner with other churches. Our church doesn't just give to the ministers and ministries of this church. We give out to other ministries. We make that a habit because we see that as a habit in individual lives. We set aside 10% of our general income and we give that out to other ministries because we just feel like that's good for us to have this outward face. 
It builds a habit of, number one, breaking the power that money has over you because it's like every, every month, every week, just saying, yeah, this is not really mine. It's a tool that God's given me. But also you're then symbolizing the gospel, that God gave everything to you, so I'm going to give away to others for his glory. Again, not, not to win salvation, not to get God's blessing, but because we believe God has blessed us first. So the next thing we see is that money does not last. Money doesn't last. Now these overlap, right? Money's not enough. Money doesn't last. Verse 13, he starts to talk about death. So think about this as you head towards your death. How much money will you take with you into the afterlife? How much money are you going to take with you? How much money will be in your wallet when you get to the other side? Verse 13, he says, there's a sickening tragedy I've seen under the sun. Wealth kept by its owner to his harm. It's the idea of hoarding. Seen the sickening tragedy. People hoard wealth. They hold on to it. Verse 14, that wealth was lost in a bad venture. So when he fathered a son, he was empty-handed as he came from his mother's womb. So he will go again. Naked as he came, he will take nothing for his efforts that he can carry in his hands. So he's saying, you, you can't take it with you. Um, now, a lot of religions of the world will say you can. I, I found a picture here of King Tut's coffin covered in gold. And that was a part of their religion. They, they put all this gold into the king's burial chamber, believing he would take it to the other side. Turns out he didn't. It's all still there, right? We found it. And so that, that's my question for you. What, how much of that gold do you think you're going to take into the afterlife? Or maybe you should spend it on something more strategic now. And I think that's what he's arguing here. Our money doesn't last. It doesn't make it into the afterlife. And so we should be strategic with what we do with it now. He goes on in verse 15. Well, I already read this, but we'll hear this again. As he came from his mother's womb, so he will go again. Naked as he came, he will take nothing for his efforts that he can carry in his hands. Verse 16, this too is a sickening tragedy. Exactly as he comes, so he will go. What does the one gain who struggles for the wind? What is more, he eats in darkness all his days with much frustration, sickness, and anger. So it's this picture of he's, he's given up on relationships because he's made money his God. So he spent all his time hoarding, thinking the money would carry him into the next life, but he's all alone. He's broken. He doesn't have anybody to share anything with. A friend of mine heard this in the earlier service, and they were saying that a money uh, or a movie that exhibited this was the movie Bucket List. Anybody ever seen the movie Bucket List? Um, so I've heard he was saying it was a pretty good movie, and it had that contrast, right, of the guy who had, you know, billions of dollars and the guy who lived a simple life but had the warmth and the love of his family, right? Now, again, scripture, scripture doesn't say if you're rich, you can't know love. What scripture is saying is if you put all your eggs in that basket, if you say money will save me, then you don't know love. Then you don't know love. Then you've become a slave to the money. And so the question for you is what are you investing in now? Jesus said, love God, love other people. Do you use your money to love God and to love other people? Jesus said this in Matthew 6, 19, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so it's interesting, this can go both ways, right? I don't think you can turn yourself into a Christian by proper practice. But I do think as we, as we take these risks, as we try the stuff that God tells us to do, 
He can use that to shape and reform our heart. Ultimately, you need the gift of faith to see that God is a good gift giver and he loves you. That's what you need, right? That's what will really change you. But I would dare you to try practicing what God tells you to practice this week. Practice it and say, God, I know that doing this doesn't indebt you to me. I know that doing this doesn't force you to have to do my will and bless me. But I see in the scriptures that you say this is a good thing. That if I lay up treasures in heaven instead of on earth, that there's some blessing there. I would encourage you to, to try it, to try practicing being generous, to try sharing what you have with others, to try serving other people. So I said giving is a, is a good habit that shapes us. It reforms us. And it doesn't just have to be money, right? You have money to share. Some of you have more than others. Some of you have time to share. You may not have much cash, but you've got time, and you can spend your time to serve others, to honor God and to love other people. You've got particular skills you can help people with. Just the gift of relationship. We live in a society where we're becoming more and more isolated, right? We live kind of privatized, individual lives on our own. We, we have to decide to engage people. Will you give the gift of relationship to another person? You're not, you're not passive. Don't let life just kind of, you know, string you along like you're on this train you can't jump off of. You can get off that train and say, I'm going to engage in relationship with other people. Spend your time, your money, your relationship, your resources for God's glory. What are ministries that you can support? Who are people that you can encourage? What are ways that you can help those around you for God's glory, right? Loving him and loving those around you because money doesn't last. You're not gonna take it into the next life. It's not gonna go with you. It's, it's not going to make it. That leads us to the last point. Money works by grace. Money works by grace, right? So the secret of contentment. We saw this a few weeks ago. Paul talks about this in Philippians 4. He says, I know how to be content with little and with a lot, and that's Christ in me. When you're satisfied in Christ, then you can be happy with a little or happy with a lot. And the parable of Matthew chapter 25, it's called often the parable of the talents. What that teaches us is that if you're not generous, it's because you believe that God is not generous. So that's my question for you. If you're feeling convicted, like, man, I'm not very generous with my time or my money, what the scriptures would say is because you don't really believe God is generous. In Matthew 25, it teaches us that if you believe God is generous, you'll go and take risks. You'll spend what he's given you for his glory and to serve other people. So let's look at the text here. Verses 18 through 20, money works by grace. The word grace means, often New Testament perspective, we summarize this with God's riches at Christ's expense. So it's the idea that God gives to us out of his riches. Primarily, that's Christ. But in all things, God is a gift giver. He gives to us. That's what grace means. So verse 18 here is what I have seen to be good. It is appropriate. That can be translated also fitting or beautiful. It's beautiful. It's appropriate. It's fitting to eat, drink, and experience good and all the labor one does under the sun during the few days of his life God has given him because that is his reward. Furthermore, everyone to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also allowed him to enjoy them, take his reward, and rejoice in his labor. This is a gift of God. For he does not often consider the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy of his heart. Now he's hit on this theme in chapter 2 and chapter 3 and what I read at the beginning, chapter 6 as well. He talked in chapter 6 about, you know, it would be, be better to never have been born than to live a life not knowing God's grace. 
not enjoying God as the gift giver. Here he's coming to it again. He's saying, you've got to know God as a gift giver. That's a wonderful gift to see that God is gracious. Then you can enjoy the little things in life, whether it be the greatest meal you've ever had or a simple meal of peanut butter and jelly. The disciplines of Christians praying before a meal, a large part of that is giving God the glory for being a provider and being generous. I joked with the earlier service that some Christians, and I've heard people joke about this, would, would joke that if you don't pray before your meal, what will happen? You'll get poisoned, right? That's like a superstitious view of God. That's not why Christians pray. We don't pray so that God won't smite us. We pray during a meal or before a meal or after a meal saying, God, you're a good gift giver. Thank you. You gave me another piece of bread. You gave me another day to live for your glory. Thank you for being so gracious to me. Christians believe that we're, we're under judgment, that God is sovereign and holy and perfect and righteous, that, that he is an all-consuming fire, and that we deserve judgment because we haven't loved each other like we're supposed to. We haven't cared for each other like we're supposed to. We haven't done what we were supposed to do with our life. But the gospel story is that God poured out his wrath on Jesus instead of on us. We see God as gracious, as a gift giver, who gives us the ultimate gift of salvation, but everything we have in life is a gift from his hands. And so you can enjoy what you have if you see God as gracious. Do you enjoy your life? Do you rejoice? It says in verse 20, he does not often consider the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy of his heart. Here's the thing, the rich man, He's not satisfied, he's worried, he's stressing because he's got to make more money or he's got to take care of new things or he's got to fix this broken item, right? Or the poor man, he's stressed, he's worried, thinking, oh, if I could be rich like the rich man, then everything would be okay. He's saying, no, you know what? If you see God's grace, if you see God's goodness to you, then you're not worried about it. You can just enjoy your life for God's glory. Wouldn't that be a beautiful way to live? Grabbed a picture here of people enjoying laughing over a meal together. And it's not just for models that are in stock photography, right? If you know Christ, if you know the riches that God has for you in Jesus, you'll know the delight of a heavenly father who loves you. He's pleased with you. That's what the gospel teaches us. That's what we believe by faith. We don't deserve his happiness, but he gives it because he's a good gift giver. So we laugh and we eat and we drink celebrating his goodness that he kept us alive another day and he has work for us to do. It's it's bring your kid to work day as long as you walk with, with God, right? We, we get to go to work with our father who loves the world, who loved the world so much he gave his only son. And so we go to work with him every day. We get up and we're like, what are the tools he's given me? What's the money, the time, the resources I have? I'm going to spend it for his glory. We enjoy the good life. Another discipline, we've talked a lot about the discipline of giving um, and giving thanks is a, is a real discipline as well. Just thanking God, not just at meals, but every day, a lot of my friends have read a book called A Thousand Gifts. Have y'all ever heard of this book, A Thousand Gifts by Ann Voskamp? Um, really good book, and it's, it's kind of written in a weird, artsy way, right? So if you don't like weird, artsy stuff, it'd be hard to follow. But if you can stomach the weird, artsy stuff, great book. Uh, but you can try the project of the book without reading it, and that is just to begin being a list keeper who gives thanks to God. Just writing down in a journal or on sticky notes or just praising God out loud, just noticing God as a gift giver. And as you engage in that discipline of thanking God for providing and giving, you actually get better at it. You begin to see his grace more and more. So I want to encourage you to move in that direction, seeing God as generous. The more we see God as generous, the more we will be generous people. 
will be those kinds of people we want to be. We dream of being, caring more for others than, than ourselves. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us so much. You gave us your son. We thank you for the riches that you spilt out to us in Jesus. We thank you for the delight and the love you have for us. We pray that you'd help us to spend ourselves for your glory and for others, not because we're still trying to win your love, but because we believe we've got it in Christ. So help us to be satisfied in you and you alone, and then help us to share, because we are so happy, we are so rejoicing in what you've given us. We thank you that you love us, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.